what am I doing with my life right now? I could be doing something so much more impactful for humanity. We spend so much of our time immersed in our jobs. The human and physiology is the last great frontier, I think. I think we think of space as the last great frontier, but terrestrially, there's a lot that we don't understand about the mechanisms of the human body. From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Super School Podcast. I am your host, Paddy Dander. Yes, I remembered my name. Let's see if I can remember our guest's name. Today, we have somebody who has many talents, and that's going to be a theme of this episode, how we can pivot and constantly pivot as needed in the fast-paced world we live in. And I am so honoured to have Leah Elson, who's going to join me today. She is a clinical development scientist and an author, and she has loads of guitars behind her on her backdrop. <laughs> hey, Leah, how are you doing? I am doing wonderful, exceptionally excited to be here. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. You're not sat in a guitar shop, are you? Not, not as far as you know, maybe. I, <laughs> the economy is a little rough worldwide right now, so possibly. I got to say, out of all the guests that I've had, you have the coolest backdrop for anyone thank that can see this on video. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I, You know, it's honestly kind of a default wall that doesn't have a lot of other stuff on it. So I'm glad that in a pinch it worked out. I just love the lights as well. I think the whole thing just works. It's brilliant. Yeah. You've got guitars hanging up all behind you, and then you've got these lights. And I think there's a hint of candles in there as well somewhere. You else. should have seen me trying to mount all of these because I couldn't find my stepladder. So I was on a, a wheeled office chair, and I was kind of craning precariously to use the drill. And it was, it was dangerous. I would not recommend. Got it. Well, it turned out <laughs> great. But yeah, welcome to the show. And Leah, what superpower would you like to bring to this particular episode? Today, I think that it's going to be vastly important to talk about the power of being able to be confident in making large life shifts and large life pivots, as you set me up for grandly earlier. But I think making big, scary decisions about should you change the trajectory of your life, whether that be personally or professionally, a lot of people are scared to do that and they pump the brakes and I think possibly to their own detriment. So I want to talk about being confident in doing that and being a champion of that and having done it successfully a couple of times myself. So just recently with the whole sort of news about AI and how chat GPT is going to change the world. I think there's a lot of people that are afraid, me included, right? Sure. About, you know, how is this new world going to look like? And am I going to still be relevant? Do I have to now think about change? So I think it's a really important topic to consider. And for anyone that hasn't really shifted their career in, a, in any other direction for a number of years, that could be a really scary thought. So uh, yeah, I'm really interested to know more about that. But before we do, I'd love to get to know a bit more about you. A, where are you from? And secondly, how did you get to where you are now? Like, could you give us some e examples of your journey? Sure. So 
Originally, I'm from Southern California, but I'm currently living in Florida, in the U.S. If there's anyone out there that doesn't know where Florida is, it's a weird part of the U.S. And I began my journey. I'm a scientist currently, but I began my journey sportscasting. I was in California and I was an athlete as I was growing up and I'm a ham in front of the camera. So it's sort of an easy thing to marry being a ham and being knowledgeable in sports. So I started sportscasting for American football. I was on the sidelines. And during that period of time, my dad got incredibly ill. He was diagnosed with cancer and he was undergoing all of these radical surgeries. And I remember thinking to myself during a live recording on the sidelines, you know, like, what am I doing with my life right now? I could be doing something so much more impactful for humanity. You know, at home, I was going through all of these very heavy sort of philosophical considerations about the possibility of losing my father and, you know, human suffering that can possibly be prevented. And I'd always loved science. I had always loved it. And so the very next week, I quit my sportscasting job cold and it was competitive to get into and something where I had some major offers coming down the pipe. And I was like, nope, I need to self-actualize and I want to do something impactful and I want to do something that's not intellectually bankrupt, as I feel like being a talking head on the sidelines it could possibly be. And I soul searched and reignited my passion for the sciences. So right before I finished my degree, I changed in and I was like, you know what? I want to be a physician. I want to be a doctor. So I ended up applying across the nation for programs that I could take a bunch of pre-medical science courses for. I got accepted at Harvard. And I'm like, you're not going to get accepted at Harvard and not go to Harvard. So I packed up a suitcase and I flew with nothing but a couple of suitcases to Boston across the country. And uh, that journey led me down a path of medical research. And my second pivot came when I actually made it to medical school, completed over a year of medical curriculum, loved it, did fantastic, and then had another hard pivot where I had to reconsider what did I want out of life? Did I think that the work-life balance of being a physician at the age that I am, I'm 37 now, um, so then I was in my early 30s, did I want to continue that trajectory? And that was very difficult because, as many of your listeners know, it is exceptionally hard to get into medical school. So once you're there, you're kind of locked in. You're like, this is what I'm doing because I've had to move hell and earth to get here. And I had a lot of luck on my side. And so I had to make the decision, you know, did I want to continue down a path of doing patient care medicine, or did I want to deviate into upstream medical research? And that was my second large pivot in life. And I made that decision about five years ago now, and I have not regretted it since. And here I am today, a clinical development scientist, and I'm doing microsurgical training. So I still get my hands on surgical tools like I wanted to as a medical student. And um, I feel like I'm doing great. Wow. That's a phenomenal journey. I mean, you know, probably <laughs> a long one. Yeah, like a sports caster. Did you say sports caster? Is that the title? Yeah. So what's one of those? Do you pick players that can come into the team? Like, what does one of those do just for anyone? Who's so that's, you know, if you're watching ESPN and they're interviewing players on the sideline or they're calling out plays from the box and they're like, and then number 32 running down the field, you know, that's I did that. I, I did ah. a little bit of box calling and did interviews and I did sports journalism. So, you know, I would write about Who's moving on to the NFL? Who's, you know, going where? Like, what was the breakdown of a game? And it would get published in newspapers locally. And, you know, I had a chance to potentially go to the NFL network, right? Like American football is huge. And I turned it down when I decided to move into the sciences. So that was something that was offered to me that is like a pipe dream for most people that go into sportcasting. And I was like, no, I just want to, I want to be a science geek. <laughs> oh, wow. I guess as you were growing up, 
what did you want to be then? Were there ambitions that you had then that you know you, you were striving for, or have you been one of those folks that thought, you know what, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to try my hand at a few different things. It's interesting because no one's ever actually asked me that. I began being a massive science lover. And then when I became an adult, I don't know. I think it's a malaise of being in college and suddenly being an adult and being thrust into that world and saying, OK, I, I feel like I'm obligated to make a decision. And then the decision presented itself to me, sportscasting. So that wasn't always my love. My love was always science. I grew up loving paleontology and geology and marine biology. And I was kind of that dorky kid that, you know, while kids were in junior high and they were starting to like date and like you're, you know, you like kiss a boy on the playground. I could name for you the taxonomy of all the dinosaurs. And I was raising brine shrimp and studying their morphologic features throughout the course of their life development. Like that was what I was doing. And I loved it. So it was strange that I hard pivoted into journalism. But there was definitely that catalytic event that told me this is not what you've always wanted to do. Like, what are you doing? You could be taking this background and applying it in a way that actually serves humanity rather than just being on TV. Oh, that's really interesting. My son, who's 10, he loves dolphins. and Nice. Yeah, he's literally just mad about them. Completely mad. He knows everything you could ever possibly want to know about a dolphin. And we had to take him to Dubai because it was the only place we could think of that he could actually swim with a dolphin. How often does he hit you with just a dolphin fact? And you're like, I had no idea. Oh, had honestly, no all the time, all the time. <laughs> and he'll do it in the most random sort of places because I remember being on the train and I was talking to someone and then fish came up into the conversation and he went, dad, that's a species of dolphin. And I was like, <laughs> it was some kind of whale. I was like, no, it's not. That's a whale. No, dad. So yeah, he just hits me with it every now and again. That just, it just shocks me. So that's amazing. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, in talking about careers and things like that, marine biologists serve currently now, I think probably a more important role than they ever have because of global warming, right? And you can see a lot of the biome changes in the oceans, which give us a really good indication of sort of our progress through the stages of climate change. So if he becomes a marine biologist, he could be possibly saving the world at some point. Wow. He'll definitely be excited now. So I'll have to <laughs> <laughs> You and your dolphins are going to save the world. <laughs> He's written comics about them. He's got these comics and I should publish them, really. I did say to him at one point, yeah. He, you he, should. That's brilliant. Yeah. So he, and then you never know, he might fall in love with writing and think, ah, stuff the marine biologist. Oh, yeah. right. I love it. I love seeing sort of the fledgling stages of beginning to, to carve out careers. Uh, Amazing. I think ki kids are great because they're not scared to hope for anything, right? You're like, what do you yeah. want to be? And people are like, I want to travel to Pluto. You're like, that's awesome. Do it. You know, like there's no constraint on the, the ambition. I love it. Yeah. And it is really interesting because then my daughter is 13. She'll just go like, dad, I'm creative. I do creative stuff. Like, don't show me a computer. I don't want to know about computing. And it's really interesting. Yeah. He is a little bit different. He's still at that age where, like you say, he's traveling to Mars or whatever. And that's going to be possible soon as well. So I can't even use that as an impossible dream. <laughs> So, you know, he's very different at the moment. So that's kind of interesting because I don't know many people that really knew deep down that this is a thing they wanted to be. There's very few people. One of my friends who's a, he's a leading trauma consultant here in the UK from day one from high school, like he said, I'm going to be a doctor. And that was it. And he just knew it. 
Whereas I was just like all over the place. I was like this, like, oh, one of those, no, one of those, one of those, one of those. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I guess if people out there are kind of thinking about, you know, I'm either thinking about a career change or I'm at that stage where I'm about to start my career. Any advice for them? Like, how do they figure out what is the thing that they should go for? You know, and the interesting thing about that question is that I don't even think that it it's a moment, a catalytic moment where you are beginning or it's the genesis of something. I think that question is dynamic. I think it gets asked in the background when you're doing everything. And, you know, I would say that a lot of it comes down to what makes you happy, right? We spend so much of our time immersed in our jobs, right? Our vocation becomes our life. We spend more fractional time with our coworkers than we do with our families, right? Over the course of weeks. And so I think really a lot of people are bound by this, what makes financial sense versus what makes me happy. And I always default. I always say finances, money, you can't take it with you when you die, right? So look back on a life and do something that you can be proud of that made you happy, even if it's just throwing pottery. If you're like, well, I'm a banker now and I'm making six figures, but I've always loved pottery and I feel like something is not right inside, go do pottery, sell all your earthly possessions and do it. Then it sounds radical. But I mean, honestly, you know, we were just talking about this before we, we hit record. I think there are so many people that go down a path because society suggests that they should do that. And then they ultimately end up fundamentally unhappy with where they are. And it's not until they reach a later stage in their life and they look back in regret. So, I mean, I'm, I'm reckless, though, and recklessly spontaneous. And so I say, do some housekeeping every once in a while. Sit down, do a pro and cons list of where you are. Where would you want to be? What's your five-year plan? Where do you see yourself in 10? And then is your trajectory taking you there? And so much of it shouldn't be... I think materialistic and financial. If your five-year plan is to be happy, fantastic. What are you doing to get there? You know. And do you think it becomes more difficult to pivot as you get older? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that when, as we age, one possibilities they begin to narrow, right? And I don't know that's a reality or it's just a psychological construct, right? Like. I've been coding for 30 years and I feel like I can't just become a veterinarian now. But, you know, I'll tell you this. When I was in medical school, there were a couple of students in there that were in their late 40s, you know, and just starting medical school, which means that they had in the U.S. four years of training and then possibly six, eight years of residency if they go into like a surgical specialty, you know, and by that time they wouldn't be an attending physician until they were into their 60s. Right. And but that's what makes them happy. And I think that you know, everything else will work out if you're like, I don't know what to do about the mortgage, et cetera. You'll find a way to make it work. But I think that there should be no price on your happiness and your self-actualization and your fulfillment, right? So yeah. I was listening to a podcast. I've forgotten the name of it now, but the guy on there, he had been a sort of a marketing expert and he worked for Airbnb and some other really big names. He's an entrepreneur and he's just set up a new business, which was it's a really interesting idea whereby it's an accelerator for people who are approaching 50. And so it's a one-year program that you can then go on to and uh, almost do that pivot, right? So he talks about how there is so much focus when you're in your 20s on helping set you up to go in a particular direction. Like we mm -hmm. just are on autopilot, right? We come through high school and there's almost 
you know, the next step is just predetermined, right? Now you'll go to university, then you'll do this, then you'll do that. But he was talking about when you hit that age of about 45, and his thinking and the research that he talked about implied that we're the most unhappiest when we're between 45 and 50, apparently. So Dang. I'm in that bracket just about now. And <laughs> so he talked about how as you approach that age, there's no help. And no wonder people say you have a midlife crisis because they are almost stuck in a rut. And so he was saying at that time is the best time to help people reevaluate the direction they want to continue in. And so you almost then restart again and go, right, I'm going right. to study something completely new. And maybe that's my future career or the direction I want to go in. I think, and I think that it's, so important. And, you know, we live in a brave new world now. And I think that even though everybody likes to make fun of sort of the Gen Z woke culture, they do, they've provided such a service to people in the working field, right? Because they have championed and pushed for sort of the work-life balance and that we're working remotely and I'm not going to take overtime for no reason, right? There's this envelope pushing generation that I think has helped kind of reframe what the idea of a life should be, right? I think that sort of post-World Wars, we forged this identity across nations of this nuclear family, right? You're 20, you might get education or you might work early, you have children, you get married, and then you basically do that until you die. But I think that this newer generation is beginning something different, right? They're saying, I might work here and then I might have an online business on the side or I might work at this one place for a couple of years, decide I don't like it and then just leave and give a two weeks notice, you know, and it's, even though it's a very, it's a scary thing because it seems very laissez-faire, they do it with very large intent and it's horrifying to see because so much of our life we've been indoctrinated to think, you know, we live in this little box and anybody outside of that box is strange or they're not doing it right and it makes us a little uncomfortable. But I love it. And I love walking a different path. And that's okay. And that every person's life is unique and different. And you don't need to do the nuclear household if you don't want to. So I think the changing your job at 50, it sounds horrifying, but it's like, why not? You know, philosophically, why not? What's stopping you? Nothing, really nothing. Yeah. And I want to take you back to when you did that first pivot after you did the sports casting role. I know you talked about there was this sort of passion inside of you that wanted to go into science and the medical field, but you know, just take us through that thought process that you had at the time, because it sounds like you're about to land a dream role and for you not to take that, like, what were you thinking? Like, t tell us and share with us some of the thought process that went of through course. your course. So, I mean, initially, and I hope that the listener does not mistake me for being 100% confident in these pivots. I want you to know that, yes, I was scared. Yes, there was a period of time where after I had made the decisions, I was like, was this the right thing? You know, so I don't want you to think like, well, I have fears and this girl was so confident. And absolutely not. You know, just like everybody, I had doubts. And the thing with sports casting, when I left, a lot of it was, I would say, probably emotionally based because of what was going on with my father at home. And so I kind of made this decision. And then the first thing I did is I, I made the decision and then thought afterwards to level set with people I cared about, right? I consulted a bunch of my friends in different fields. And I said, I just left my job. I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I'm searching for something. And I leaned in a lot on my support network to tell me what I was good at. And I didn't ask them at the time, but I realized after the fact that they were really the ones that said, 
I mean, yo, you're a science geek or you're so empathetic. Like you should really, I had a friend who was a firefighter. He was like, you should really look into the medical field. And I was like, you know, I just came out of sports casting. What are you talking about? And I really considered that. And then another one of my friends who, it's funny, we ended up in the same city. I've moved around so many times and we actually, he works at the university down the street. He's an anesthesiologist now. And he said, listen, if you're thinking about doing medicine, I think you would love it. I think you get the personality for it. You should go and just volunteer your time in an emergency room overnight. Do the overnight shift. Tell them you want to be a medical student. Just tell them, just lie and tell them you that's what you're doing. And they will give you more responsibility because they need hands on. Like that's a very thinly staffed time of night. And I did that. I worked from 10 to like 3 a.m. a couple of times a week. And I had a little volunteer thing and I pushed gurneys. And I told the residents that I was looking to go to medical school. So they taught me how to place EKG leads. And I helped like assist in central lines. And they taught me how to suture on, you know, like mattresses and things like that. And it was just kind of immersing myself in support. And then also kind of trying out in little packets the thing that I suspected I liked and then reevaluating, how did this make me feel? It's 3 a.m. I should hate this. I'm not getting paid for this. But, you know, it lit me up. I was so elated by what I was doing. And I was like, yes, like this is an excitement that I did not experience with sports casting. This is a rush of adrenaline that I haven't felt before for a vocation. I think lean in on the people who know you. That's a really good thing to do. And have them say, yo, if you had to pick a career for me, what do you think it would be? Or have them talk about, reflect back your personality, because sometimes it's really hard to evaluate self. You can evaluate your friends all day. You can talk about strangers and your coworkers, but it's really hard to turn that analytic eye on yourself, but your friends are good at it. So they kind of led me into that. And then just through trying things out and reading books and then immersing myself online and reading about people's experiences who were going into medical school late in the game. What did they go through? What was I up against? And I was like, you know what? I'm up for this challenge. Let's do it. Let's do it. Hi, folks. Sorry for the quick interruption. But before we continue with this awesome episode, I have a huge favor to ask. If you're enjoying these conversations and you're finding it's giving you value in your daily challenges, then I'd be extremely grateful if you could leave a short review and subscribe to whichever platform you're either watching or listening to this episode on. That's it. Let's get back into the episode. Oh, that's such interesting advice and great advice because I think I find that really difficult as well in that as an individual, I have lots of ideas and I have certain perception of what I think I want to do. But to soundboard it with somebody else or the people around you, because they can often see things that you may miss or, you know, you just overlook can be really useful. And I think just even simple things like when someone starts asking you some questions and they can see a certain excitement coming across, like when you talked about medicine just there, oh my God, your excitement just went off the scale. Like (laughs) even I could see it's like, it was just up there and that peaks in somebody and you can observe that in them and they may not even know they're doing it but of course can see that can't they and there's always when you're in that position where you're like i'm about to make a really significant life choice you it's easier psychologically for you to listen to all the reasons why you shouldn't right you have all of these different sort of determining voices that float around in your head right there's the reckless champion for you that's like yeah you should buy that sports card do it <laughs> and then you have the voice that's like, well, but what about this? And what about this? And the hopeless pessimist. 
And so it's difficult sometimes to weed through that crowd of voices that that we all listen to on a daily basis. But the people that aren't listening to them are your friends that care about you and know you very objectively, right? So I think that helps, especially when it's an emotional thing where you're like, oh, but I got a mortgage and I have 30 years into this career and I'm doing this. And oh my God, what are all these people going to think? You know, it's easy to default back to what's easy because you don't want to rock the boat, right? Uh, no, for sure. And I'd love to talk about the stuff you do now, actually, Leah, because you have a very grand title, clinical <laughs> development scientist. And when I first saw that, I thought, right, she's really clever and she's really important. So could you break that down for us? What do you do now? Give us an insight into that. Sure. So I work in the field of peripheral nerve repair. So I am responsible for helping patients to regain motor function and sensation if they lose it either in their extremities or if they have, say, like a surgical resection to resect a tumor or something and they begin to lose sensation. We help surgeons come up with solutions to bridge those connections, right? The nerves that run your body from your brain all the way through your fingertips they when they get severed it's an electrical line outside is you know knocked down by a tree and you see when it's not connected it sparks and it may flop around on the ground a little bit like you see in movies and the sort of the same thing happens with the human nervous system wherein you cut a nerve and if it's not reconnected it begins to spark and misfire and it causes pain it causes numbness it may mean that you can't close your hand and for a lot of people this is devastating right people who play instruments or they work with their hands they are in a labor field and so, you know, we in, in my field and in, in my position specifically, clinical development scientist means that I am working in between research and development. So coming up with new technology to help peripheral nerves to regrow and to regenerate, or I'm taking existing technology in the portfolio and applying it to something new and novel. So for instance, right now I'm applying our current technology in the exploration of gender affirmation surgery, right? So somebody who actually undergoes a surgery to change their reproductive components into the opposite sex, there's obviously a lot of nerve damage that happens during those surgeries and you require nerves to make the new reproductive components work appropriately. So how do I take our existing technology and our knowledge in the space as experts in peripheral nerve repair and help somebody undergoing life-changing gender affirmation surgery? How do we help in that surgical space? I also do a little bit of lecturing to residents and to fellows. And I also do some microsurgery work. If anybody's looking to practice microsurgery, chicken thighs, you can find the vessels and the nerves in there. They stay around when you get them from the butcher and they're great microsurgical practice. So. Oh God, I can't do with blood. I'm just one of those. Oh, you're one of those. People. Yeah. You know, it's funny. A lot of my classmates in med school terrified of blood. <laughs> I promise you. It's a really? thing. Oh yeah. God. I just always thought like, I just couldn't, I can't even do the needle thing. So I, I just would be hopeless, I think, as a doctor. Yeah, you know, you'd be surprised how many people begin that way. And they're like, oh, I don't want to learn how to, you know, place an IV or something. And then they just, I think they're rote times doing it. They just, they get numb to it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, And so in terms of your field, it sounds like there's probably a lot of technology and, you know, some of the research that's coming out must be very advanced. So what sort of things can you do now in that field that you couldn't do before? A lot of it is really unpacking human physiology, right? The human and physiology is the last great frontier, I think. I think we think of space as the last great frontier, but terrestrially, there's a lot that we don't understand about the mechanisms of the human body. And peripheral nerves have, we've begun to understand more about 
why they do or do not regenerate in many instances. And so a lot of our technology, it's interoperative technology. So it's materials, biomaterials that are used to span gaps to help encourage nerves to grow through them, you know, providing affold for the axons of the nerves and the little fibers to grow through and make that connection and regenerate. Or understanding from a microbiological perspective, if the nerve is sitting in a tissue bed that is damaged, that damaged tissue, like damaged muscle or something like that, it sends chemical signals out, right? Like like SOS signals, right? There are these little cytokines that go out and they say, hey, we're damaged. And that encourages inflammation and an inflow of blood supply to deliver nutrients and oxygen as the tissue is healing. And we found that even if a nerve is completely undamaged, but it's in that environment where there is damaged muscle, et cetera, that sometimes it will just freak out and break down and act like it's damaged. And so there are things that we don't understand about our own bodies. We still don't know why this happens. This is something that we're in the early phases of exploring right now. Why does the nerve act this way and act so dramatic when it's around damaged tissues? And so it, in my space, you know, technologically, we're working with a lot of biomaterials, et cetera. But we are pushing the envelope and we're on the bleeding edge of just understanding the human body, which is something that we take for granted. We think that, you know, we have this hubris that, oh, we know everything there is to know. We really don't. <laughs> we really don't, especially when it comes to the nervous system. You've done lots of different things. Now, as you look back and you start to join the dots. So there's a really famous Steve Jobs speech that he did at Stanford where he did a kind of a, a joining the dots speech and he talked about there was a reason why the things he did all contributed to where he got to in the end. Things like he took calligraphy classes, which as we know, you know, Apple had beautiful fonts when of course. You know, they, they launched their products. And so he talked about how, although he did some really left field things, looking back, he's so glad he did them. So if you look back now at all of the different things, maybe even before you became a sportscaster as well, because I'm sure you, you did things before that as well. What are some of those dots, if you join them up, that you can think of that have contributed to getting you to where you are now? Oh, yeah. I, you know, and I've never done this exercise, but I believe in it wholeheartedly. I think every experience you go through, every class, every person you meet is a learning opportunity. And I think as weird as it is, sports casting has been incredibly useful for what I do now because, like I said, I'm a lecturer, right? And I know that there is a PR problem in science and it's difficult sometimes to take experts in their field and get them in front of an audience and get them engaged in what they're doing, especially if it's like biomaterials and the physiology of nerve repair. So it has helped me be a voice for the exciting things that we're doing. And then by extension, I'm also a public science communicator. So to also take what I'm doing and describe it to the public or if the public has questions about vaccines or disease, pathology, you know, anything. I have a platform now to do that. And I was set up for that with sportcasting, right? To be a liaison between hard science and the public, especially in the United States, because the public has an average reading level of like a sixth grade reading level. And so to help quell fears, et cetera, surrounding anything having to do scientifically, it's useful to have somebody that can break things down. So that's been incredibly useful. But also, you know, I mean, I think of being an athlete in college and having that sort of leadership capacity has helped in my field, you know, especially as a woman in my field. Only about 30 percent of researchers in the world are women. And so I think that it takes a special kind of moxie and self-confidence and leadership to get in front of a board table that's full of older male physicians and speak confidently and, you know, kind of 
put my flag in the sand that says I'm an absolute expert. And this is why all of you should be listening to me on this subject. So, you know, I can think of so many little things that may or may not have been academic, right? Like playing sports that have contributed to where I am today. And, um, and so it's interesting to, to connect those dots, right? Yeah. And as if you're not busy enough with everything else you do, you're writing a book at the moment as well, aren't you? Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So the book is being released this summer. It's called There Are No Stupid Questions in Science. And through my years of being a science communicator, I have really relied on the public to drive what it is they want to know. So many of my colleagues that have been science communicators, right, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye, they're wonderful and tremendous. And I looked up to them, but they always kind of do a top down lecture, right? They will lecture to what the they think the audience should know. And I've always opened up my platform to what do you guys want to learn about? So we've explored everything from is it possible to clone a woolly mammoth to why do men have nipples to why can't we travel faster than light? Like, why can't photons go faster than the upper echelon of light, light speed? And so, you know, in years of doing this, I've collected so many questions and I had so many that I didn't answer just simply for time. And I thought to myself driving in the car one day, man, somebody should really write that book. And then I thought I should write that book. Why not? So the book is written and illustrated by me. And it's a compendium of 103 of these scientific questions from all scientific fields and uh, all public asked through the course of the years. And you done all of the illustrations as well. I did. I did. The illustrating was the hardest part, to be honest, because I'm not classically trained as an artist. And I decided to do all the renderings in crayon because I wanted to hearken to the childlike nature of all of these questions. They're all from adults, but they're very simple, right? Why is the sky blue? Do we all see the same color? You know, things like that. Very simple. But I've found through the course of my soiree as a science communicator that the simplest questions always evoke the most elegant responses. And so the questions are are very, the responses are very wry. They're very sarcastic. They're a page long. So they're meant to be quick and easy, which was sometimes challenging when people are asking me what's dark matter and, you know, it, explanations about the universe to try to get it to a page or two was a challenge, certainly, but a blast to write, an absolute blast to write. So. Oh, wow. I can't wait, actually. I'd love to read that book. I think there's probably a whole bunch in there that I would love to get the answers to as well. You know what? I'm devastated. There's nothing about dolphins. And now I feel guilty. I didn't do something about dolphins. Don't worry. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll get him on a call with you and he'll give yeah. you a few facts and then you can you can see what you want to do with them. I will ask him to advise and just write that section on dolphins. <laughs> do a better job than I. I'll, I'll get him to write an email to you. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Then you can... Oh, brilliant. Well, Leah, we're fast approaching end of time and I just feel like the time has flown by and uh, I've learned so much. So if somebody out there would like to get some help in terms of figuring out their life, which is a big question, are there any kind of books that you would recommend for people or resources or even podcasts? Sure. So I'm a big paper book reader. I love it. And two books that I've really enjoyed are Think Like a Freak. This was, it's from the authors that wrote Freakonomics, and it's more sort of getting the reader comfortable with thinking outside of the box. How do you do that? How do you feel comfortable asking weird questions, but 
as a scientist through the course of history, asking weird questions is what has propelled our knowledge base forward, right? Copernicus challenged the Catholic Church in saying that the sun did not revolve around the earth, right? And that's a crazy thing to ask yourself. But this, these questions are so monumentally important and they talk about out-of-box thinking. And I think it's a really good exercise in training your brain to see outside of the scope of the expected. And then the second one is that I'm just finishing now, which I've loved, is Atomic Habits. And Atomic Habits is wonderful because if you are trying to change your life and pivot in a certain direction, this sort of gives you a really nice how-to manual for how to do it in a way that is not incredibly intimidating, right? He talks a lot about the small quantized changes you can make on a daily basis to help you reach an ultimate goal. So I've really enjoyed listening to him or I guess yeah. suppose reading him. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I think for me as well, I love Atomic Habits. I think it's, Great. it's a phenomenal set of practical tips and techniques that you can apply, isn't it? Whereas a lot of the books you see on self-help are usually, there's a lot of fluff in there and they give you maybe one or two things, but the whole book is just packed full of really good techniques. It's great. And I think it's helpful because it makes it bite-sized, right? These big changes because such so much of it is so daunting, right? He talks about kicking, smoking. He talks about making massive, scary changes. And I think a lot of times people don't do it because it does seem daunting and intimidating. So, you know, you read through it and you're like, I could do that. Every page you're like, I could do that. <laughs> I could <Yeah>. totally do that. <laughs> oh, for sure. I just had one more question, actually, that came to mind. In your book, there are no stupid questions. What's the stupidest question in there that you think, or not the stupidest question, but the one that's most extreme? The strangest question. Oh, man. I mean, I've had some very, there's a very specific one in there where someone said, you know, my wife has O-type blood, but neither of her parents do. Should she be concerned? And I was like, this guy's trying to start drama at the family dinner table. So I explained blood typing and that he should they shouldn't be concerned. And there's a likelihood she's still there. But I also had another one was is not having sex harmful. Right. So I've had some very specific questions. And those were the most interesting that I've answered. And it's not having sex harmful. Well, it's you're not going to die from not. But there are full health benefits for men. There's a decreased risk of prostate cancer. There's also, you know, obviously a flood of endorphins and a decreased association with things like chronic depression, things of that nature. But also there's the other side where we talk about that there are, I think off the top of my head, six different fungal species in the very genital tract and like 200 different kinds of bacteria. So obviously exchanging these microbes is possibly not healthy. So it's an interesting give and take question, definitely. I thought you were going to leave us with a cliffhanger there on that of that second question about is not having sex harmful yeah. to you then that would have been a great reason for people to go and read the book <laughs> listen i'm not i'm not going to do that i know because everyone would be like oh my god and they'd be thinking about it worrying about it. all my hypochondriacs out there no you gotta wait till summer now that's it oh no honestly it's been absolutely amazing talking to you i've had so much fun i don't think i've had this much fun on an episode for so long so really thank you you have such an infectious personality as well it's like you know such a warm personality and i can see you're so passionate about the things that you do as well. And uh, that really comes across. So I'm so glad you're doing something you love and you enjoy. And it just seems like you're pushing the boundaries again and again. And that's great to hear. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful. This time has flown by like this. So when you said we're wrapping up, I'm like, what do you mean we're wrapping up? We just got stuck. Oh, no. Thank you so much. There you have it, folks. It's the end of another insightful episode. And as always, thank you so much for sticking around to listen to this episode and for helping support me and encouraging me to create more content for you guys. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, 
you'll find my email address in the show notes or equally head over to the website and click on the contact link and I promise I will respond to every single message I receive. I'm always looking for your feedback so if you'd like me to change things up or improve things I would love your opinions. If there are topics that you would like us to do future episodes on or there are other great speakers that you are aware of then please do mention them and uh, we'll see if we can make it happen. Thank you once again 